My name is Ian Urbina. I've reported on some pretty mind-blowing stories, but nothing like what happens at sea. If they got within 800 metres, that is when we would fire warning shots. Murder, slavery, human trafficking, and staggering environmental crimes. Men have told me that they've been beaten with stingray tails, with chains. If you really want to understand crime, start where the law of the land ends. The Outlaw Ocean. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. What do we want? And when do we want it? Now! What do we need? Justice. And when do we need it? Now! And are we going to fight for it? Yeah. Back in September, I got to spend a few days with activists from Extinction Rebellion in Berlin. They're the German chapter of a climate activist group that started in the UK back in 2018. Members of Extinction Rebellion, or XR, call themselves rebels. They use nonviolent civil disobedience to push governments to act more quickly on climate change. I met up with them towards the end of a week of protest. They'd planted themselves in a park in the heart of Berlin. This was their base, and from there, they were going to carry out a couple of different protests. That day, a bunch of them were going to glue themselves to a ministry building to protest the government's handling of the energy crisis. But things weren't going according to plan. The police were literally everywhere. Everywhere, like in every corner, in every driveway, uh, we're standing at least two, three, four police cars in a row with each like 20. Berlin police were being extra vigilant because XR had already created a huge headache for them the day before. A bunch of them had super glued themselves to the street in the middle of a busy intersection and blocked traffic for several hours. The cops had to pour oil on their hands and peel them off one by one. That's where I met Gilbert Rossier. He'd come to Berlin all the way from Sweden. He's a father of four, and he used to be a teacher, but says he lost his job because of his activism. And since then, he's fully committed to it. If you talk to people who just benefit out of this scheiss, of this horrible um, big money, <laughs> they don't want to listen. They only think about their own benefit, nothing else. Is there a line as an activist that you wouldn't cross at this point? I mean, we have to fight like lions, even if we get killed, even if we get eh, like locked away. But Gilbert wasn't always as comfortable with this level of personal sacrifice. I mean, at the beginning, I, I was like also fighting, but I was always scared of the repression. Um, scared what neighbors would think about me, scared of the, the penalties we get and the fines, of course. I have so crazy big fines waiting at really? home. Yeah, there are a couple of thousands. <laughs> but, but still, I mean, this is nothing compared of all those poor people on this planet, like in uh, Pakistan, who are dying. <laughs> when you get that, you, yeah, you, you, you just can't do anything else. You, you realize we have two years three years max to really do what you have to do. Yeah. What do you have to do? Yeah. Sorry, I'm, yeah, I'm taken aback because 
I, I didn't expect you to get emotional. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's no, a thing. thing. It's it's a, it's far far above emotional now. Yeah. It's it's nothing to to just read and and think. Oh yes, this is a problem. It's even bigger than uh, COVID. It's it's even bigger than the energy crisis. Gilbert is convinced that the public needs to really ramp up the pressure on politicians to cut down on CO2 emissions because the window to prevent the worst consequences of climate change is closing. That sense of desperation you hear in his voice isn't unique. This is a sentiment I heard a lot in Berlin, that protests need to be more brazen because time is running out. We're seeing it in activist circles across Europe. In just the last few weeks, in the lead up to COP27, the annual United Nations Climate Change Conference, we've seen protesters throw food at famous paintings, spray paint government buildings, glue themselves to highways. Are you more concerned about the protection of a painting or the protection of our planet and people? That is that feeling when you see the planet being destroyed yeah, before our very eyes. But these tactics are stirring up a lot of debate, not just among the public, but also among activists, some of whom believe they're alienating people who would otherwise support the cause. This week on the show, I'm going to unpack all of this with Colin Davis, a professor of psychology at the University of Bristol, who happens to also be a longtime climate activist. You'll also hear from some of the activists I talked to from XR Germany. We'll get to know the people behind these more disruptive climate protests, look at why they're divisive, and whether they work. I'm Tamara Kandacker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. Colin, hi. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. So, Colin, you study how people respond to different kinds of climate change protests, but I know you've also been involved in them, and you've even been arrested multiple times as recently as this year. And I'm wondering if we can start with a time that stands out to you? Can you tell me a story about a time that you got arrested? The first time I was arrested, I think, was in, in some ways a bit of a life-changing experience for me. So it was a very wet day, often it is in, in Bristol in November. Uh, so this is three years ago now. It, it was a very cheeky kind of action. I sprayed a government building directly in front of a policeman, which they didn't like. So I was arrested for that and I was thrown in a police cell. And the interesting thing about that for me was that, you know, perhaps perversely, um, it was quite a liberating experience. You know, when you get in the police cell and you find, well, this isn't actually so bad for someone like me in it anyway, you know, a white middle-class, middle-aged professor, it's okay. And that's kind of a reinforcement of one of the things about being an activist, which is that you are expressing a willingness to go beyond the bounds of uh, social convention because of a commitment to principles, what you think is right. Yeah. And I know before this, you'd already been involved in the fight against climate change for decades, doing things like like signing petitions, right? Just being involved in more traditional ways. But how did you finally decide to join XR? Like, what was the journey that you went through 
in your mind that brought you to that point? Well, you know, I, I've been concerned about climate change for a long time, you know, essentially my entire adult life. I've been aware of this problem uh, and I've kind of checked in occasionally with the science and let's see what governments are doing and just has kept getting worse. Emissions have continued to go up, temperatures have continued to go up. And I've done the, the usual sorts of things that people do in my own personal life and political type things and none of them had had any impact. And that was something that made me start thinking about the possibility of civil disobedience. And then I heard about Extinction Rebellion, which kind of started quite locally. And so I, I immediately joined up. Over the last few months, we've been hearing a lot about some of the more disruptive tactics being used by groups like XR and Just Stop Oil. But the protesters who take part in these actions make up a pretty tiny faction of the climate movement. A small percentage of people who say they care about climate change would actually protest, and an even smaller chunk of these people would risk arrest or physical harm. So not everyone who joins a group like XR has to commit to that. XR has a system where activists are divided into levels from zero to three, depending on how much risk they're willing to take on. Levels of risk. We have like, we named like level one is when uh, you engage in a civil disobedient action, police arrives, tells you to leave and you leave. So normally you would have no record. Giordano Cioni is a level three activist with XR, and I met him as he was planning to glue himself to a ministry building. This is him explaining to me how the system works. Uh, level two is when police tells you to leave, and then you decide not to leave, so they have to take you away with force from a blockade, and then they take your document, and usually legal repercussion include a fee. And then the level three, which is the higher risk, we call the higher risk, is when you are one of the people who are actually blocking. So either with gluing yourself onto the entrance of a door or blocking a road by chaining yourself with other, with other rebels. And this is, the, yeah, this is the risk in which you pretty much sign to be taken into custody and to have a criminal record after that. I asked Colin, what would make someone want to become a level three activist? It's an interesting question, and, uh, you know, we don't exactly know. One thing that it, it's worth thinking about is that if we look at other sorts of situations in which regular people make sacrifices, then they're not so uncommon. I mean, if you look at people who join the armed forces or people who, uh, you know, become firefighters or so on, they are taking on great personal risk Presumably because they think that there is something noble about that or that they're doing something that is good for society. So for some people, they can extend that kind of circle of, of concern so that it makes perfect sense for them to think both about you know, the, the well-being and the futures of their own children, but perhaps about other people's children, about indeed people who are living today and who are right on, on the front lines of climate crisis. So it's good to flip the question on its head in some ways and, and ask, well, why aren't more people willing to do that, given the stakes? It's interesting. When I talked to some of these activists in the summer, that was the impression that I got, too, is that they just really care. And there didn't really seem to be anything much deeper than that. But something that did come up a lot when I was talking to people is that the ones who take on more risk tend to be in more 
privileged positions, meaning financially or in terms of their immigration status. Some other activists in my local group, they are not in a position because of their visa or because of whatever other reasons, or also maybe because they have more fear. Some of them are people of color. We know police is more aggressive towards people of color. So personally, I mean, I, I have permit to stay. Or like, to be honest, I'm, I'm not afraid about it. Does that align with what you've seen? Yes, and, you know, it, it is easier for some people to, to take on that risk. Uh, I know in Extinction Rebellion there are, and, and indeed in groups like Just Stop Oil in Insulate Britain, there are a lot of people who are retired. Uh, you know, they don't need to worry about what happens if they get arrested or, or perhaps even go to prison. You know, from their perspective, they're, they're more interested perhaps in their legacy. Which is not to say that there aren't many young people who are taking great risks and showing great commitment. And there, of course, you know, you can say, well, it, it makes sense because they can see how directly this impacts on their future. You know, if you're 20 years old today, then 2050, uh, I mean, that, that makes you younger than I am now, right? And you would prefer not to uh, be living in a world of climate catastrophe then. So, you know, I think it's it, it is important for people who have more privilege to to think about how they can exploit that. At the same time, um, I think everyone has a role to play. I want to take a break to tell you about another CBC podcast I think you might like. It's a daily news podcast called Front Burner, and it's kind of our sister show. It comes out weekday mornings. It's a deep dive into the biggest story of the day. I listen to it every day, and I always come away having learned something new. They cover all kinds of news, Canadian, international, occasionally sports, pop culture. It's hosted by the brilliant Jamie Poisson. Check it out on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. In the lead-up to their week-long protest in Berlin, XR invites me to one of their rehearsals. It's outside at the back of this graffiti-covered, abandoned-looking building called the House of Materialization. It's an artist and community hub where a lot of creatives and activists go to meet and find reusable material for their projects. There are around 40 people when I arrive. A few of them are spray-painting some empty oil canisters, while another group is trying to get a pink wooden structure out of a truck. So what are you guys, what are you trying to figure out right now? With uh, like basically the procedure of putting it in the truck and getting it out of oh. there and okay. all of that. This is Tobias, an XR member who's watching to make sure no one gets hurt. The structures look like oil rigs, and the plan is for some of the activists to stand on top of them while others stand in front, suited up as oil execs and wearing the black spray-painted oil jugs on their heads. So is the, is the idea that you're going to stand on the, those structures yes. and like basically throw the earth around? <laughs> The pandemic was a huge blow to the climate movement in Germany and throughout Europe. Groups like XR, Just Stop Oil, and even more moderate organizations like the student movement Fridays for Future are trying to figure out how to rebuild their support to pre-pandemic levels. The more activists I talk to, the clearer it is that there's not a lot of consensus around how to do that. Yeah. Actually just going to the whatever train that 
carries the coal and stopping that for 10 hours or whatever, yep. and, like trying to cause X millions in damage. Tobias and I start talking about what XR strategy is, and I ask him to respond to one of the main criticisms of tactics like street blockades and protests inside galleries, which is that they should be more focused on structures that are more directly tied to climate change, like pipelines. But the problem there is, of course, like it's if you're not doing it where the, the people are, where the media is, yeah. it's really easy to ignore, even if it causes like whatever, like 50 million in damage. like. That's what I heard from some of the Just Stop Oil actions yeah. as well, where like you can calculate how much damage you create, but like the public doesn't know about it to anywhere near the degree that the highway blockades affect just, like the everyday functioning of society. And so that that more direct link is what you maybe need for mobilization, because at the end of the day, without mass mobilization, it's all just yeah, like yeah. But then when you do block the highway versus blocking like the construction of something, do you think that? brings in more people or does it alienate more people if you're like disrupting the commute of the average person i guess i mean it's not been the response you're not doing this to mobilize whatever the people who are in that traffic jam right you're at the end of the day trying to mobilize a few percent of the population yeah. to do like high risk stuff and i mean you do need obviously a large percentage of the population to at least like be somewhat sympathetic but honestly i don't think we're that far from that Colin's been observing the climate movement in Europe for a long time, and I asked him what the argument is for using the kind of disruptive tactics that we've been seeing in recent months. If to be perfectly realistic and frank about the situation, so far everything has failed. So it's it's not that you know there is some superior strategy that we're aware of, and some people are choosing to ignore that strategy. It's just that we simply don't know. What works? I mean, there was a book that came out uh, a year or two ago uh, by the Swedish scholar Andreas Malm called uh, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Um, notwithstanding the title, it's not an instruction manual. It is a call for climate activists to move away from what he refers to as strategic pacifism and to embrace uh, property damage and sabotage. And he argues that this is justified when we consider where we're we're at uh, with the climate crisis. Some people have been quite swayed by that argument, and we've seen a shift where some people have moved a bit more in that direction. On the other hand, there are some people who have found that you know their involvement in groups like Extinction Rebellion hasn't led to um, uh, you know, any obvious impact. And so, yes, they have either kind of burnt out or have shifted towards more moderate tactics. They are facing what is referred to as the activist dilemma. They know that if you restrict yourselves to moderate tactics like marches and you know, writing to MPs and, and doing kind of socially normative types of things, then uh, no one pays any attention. It's almost as if you might as well not do it. What does the research say about the effectiveness of using tactics like throwing soup at paintings and gluing yourself to a road? The literature includes models that suggest that in order to be effective, protesters need to maintain uh, some kind of connection with the public so the public sympathizes with them, uh, identifies with the protesters. I mean, what you hear again and again is people saying, I support what you're saying. I just don't like the way you're going about it. 
So in research that I've done recently, I've tried to, to test this model out by having people read newspaper articles, uh, which are kind of slightly biased either uh, towards or against the protesters. And when you show people um, a, a newspaper article which presents a slightly more negative view of the protesters, then that does lead people to um, see the protesters as less moral, to identify with them less. However, it has no impact, it turns out, on the degree to which people support the protesters' demands. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if you think about it, that's how we might hope it would be if, if people were at least being somewhat rational. I mean, it would be a bit strange if you were someone who was really quite concerned about climate change and you were then to say, having seen someone block a road or, or throw some stupid painting, say, actually, you know, now I've seen that, I'm not concerned about climate change. People who criticize the most recent incidents that we've seen, the food throwing incidents, they say that artists like Picasso and Da Vinci and these art museums, they have nothing to do with the climate crisis and the focus should be on institutions and symbols that directly damage the climate, like oil refineries, for example. What do you make of that? Do they have a point? Yes, of course it makes sense to, to target uh, oil companies and so on. But what's most important from the activist perspective is getting the public's attention. And so actors have been experimenting with different sorts of tactics to find out what is it that works. The protesters have been to the National Gallery and, and other you know, museum, museums and galleries uh, repeatedly over the course of this year, gradually experimenting with different techniques, you know, gluing themselves to the wall next to the painting, gluing themselves to the frame of the painting, putting something over the canvas which shows what the world will look like at um, three or four degrees of warming. Um, these things have got a little bit of attention, uh, not so much. And so what we've seen in the latest stage is something which ups the ante a little bit by giving at least the illusion of uh, property damage and this quite kind of shocking visceral effect of seeing food thrown at the paintings. And, you know, that is something that has got the attention. So from one level, you could say, well, maybe, maybe there is no connection with art, but it's just something that gets attention, which is what uh, we need to get the conversation going. Now, having said that, if you speak to the activists, they will also say, well, in fact, there is a connection that we're trying to draw out. And, and if you listen to what Phoebe was saying uh, immediately after throwing that soup at the, the Van Gogh, um, the question she poses to the viewers is, what is more important, uh, art or life? Is it worth more than food? Worth more than justice? Are you more concerned about the protection of a painting or the protection of our planet and people? The cost of living Shouldn't that cause us some degree of outrage? So jumping off of something that you said earlier, if disruption is crucial, if generating headlines is crucial, connecting to the public by doing stuff like this, if all of these things are important to getting people to keep thinking about the climate crisis, is there a point where disruption does more harm than good for this cause? Like, wh where do you think that line is? 
Well, so one of the things that actors have to be cautious about is that although disruption and extreme tactics get a lot of attention and, you know, I'd argue it doesn't necessarily matter for the protesters if the public ends up viewing them negatively. What is potentially problematic is if this leads to greater repression of protest generally. I mean, that is a trend that we're seeing in the UK and in other countries around the world. Uh, Governments have been bringing in more and more draconian laws in order to try to clamp down on protest. Home Secretary Suela Braverman will soon announce plans to grant the UK police new powers. The police must have all the powers that they need to stop the protesters who use guerrilla tactics and bring chaos and misery to the law-abiding majority. So whether you're Just Stop Oil or Insulate Britain or Extinction Rebellion, you cross a line when you break the law, and that's why we'll keep putting you behind bars. And to the extent that uh, you upset the public with your tactics, that public will be more sympathetic to the government when it does engage in, in repression protests. And I think that's that's problematic, not just for climate activists, but for anyone who's interested in bringing about social change. Mm-hmm. The one other thing that we haven't talked about that I just wanted to touch on really quickly is this idea of the radical flank effect. I'm wondering if you can talk about that and how protests like this increase support for a movement overall? What kind of effect do more radical, more disruptive tactics have on the overall climate movement? So the radical flank effect refers to the idea that when you have uh, different factions within, within a movement, then the actions of the more radical flank, which you know might involve things like blocking roads and so on, Although they may be quite unpopular, they can have a positive impact on the moderate faction by increasing the you know the perceived contrast between those two factions. So it wouldn't make any sense for Greenpeace, for instance, to to go around throwing super paintings because you know they would lose a lot of supporters, they would lose a lot of donations, they wouldn't have the same opportunities to uh, to sit at the table with uh, government ministers, diplomats, and so on. However, for smaller groups on the radical flank, actions uh, like blocking roads and throwing food, they do make more sense because um, the publicity that they get means that they're a good way of attracting supporters. Uh, Just Stop Oil has doubled the number of followers they have on social media following their actions, for instance. Now, you you might then look at that and say, well, does that mean that these radical factions are just acting in a way that is very self-interested at the expense of the wider climate movement? Well, in fact, no. The entire movement can benefit, it turns out, from these actions, according to research. Groups like Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth and so on might come out and be quite critical publicly of Just Stop Oil, but perhaps behind closed doors, they might be saying, well, actually, this is a positive thing for us as well. Yeah. Okay. Colin, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking this through with you. Thank you. My pleasure.
All right, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Our producer is Joyta Shangupta, and our sound designers are Julia Whitman and Yvette Sin. Our senior producer is Elaine Chow. The executive producer of Nothing is Foreign is Nick McKay-Blokos. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. If you like this episode, take a second to rate and review us wherever you're listening. It really helps new listeners find the show. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you back here next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.